How are you guys this morning? Good? How many of you were here last Sunday when Brennan preached? Heard the honesty and the angst that he was carrying and all those different things? I was thinking about that message a lot through the week. And I was thinking maybe we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously. Maybe we should lighten up a little bit. and Maybe we should put a little flex in the rules. Maybe we should party a little bit more. Yeah, you guys are just like first service. You're like, what is he talking about? I mean, what Paul is going to talk about today, I mean, that, it even sounds creepy to say that out loud, but it's this idea of, well, listen, you know, if there's grace, let's just go easy on one another. Let's just take this easy street. Let's just have a little bit of fun. Come on, people. But Paul is concerned, as his father is concerned, about who has us, what has us. You see, God's not up there keeping a scorecard like, well, Brennan obeyed that rule. Oops, not that one. What God is concerned about for Brendan is that he has all of Brendan. I'm kind of concerned about that too. But, <laughs> but in a sense of where, where is he putting his trust? Where is he putting his life? And the Father wants that. So I want to read, if you have your Bibles, open them to Romans 6. I want to read you the text. Then I want to take a little bit of time to unpack some realities around it. It almost seems like Paul has got a little bit of uh, Alzheimer's or something where he's running laps around this, but it's a different deal. It says in Romans 6.15, What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Kind of sounds like verse 1, but it's different. He says, By no means, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And there are a whole bunch of tensions that wrap around this passage. And for us to really get our heads around it and to understand it. So when Brennan was talking last week, one of the things that people resonated with is this, this struggle, this tension we feel about, I, I don't even really like myself. I don't like the stuff I think about. I don't like where my mind goes sometimes. I don't like some of the things that I do or don't do. And I, I, when I talked to Brendan, I, I think you said it's probably the message that you got the most feedback from, where people were resonating with this struggle that's inside of us, this tension that, that just keeps churning. And so when we hear things like Jesus loves me, we know that sounds good. Like, oh, man. But inside it creates another tension because when we look at ourselves, we go, I don't even like me. How can this perfect God love me? I don't get that. And so right in that instant, in that tension, it's very tempting for us to respond out of what we think about ourselves as opposed to what he really thinks about us. And we draw aside. We go, I can't possibly understand why this guy loves me. When Betsy and I got married, she came from a healthy family system. Mine wasn't so healthy. And in fact, I, as I got older, I remember different places where my dad did try to signal to me that he loved me. 
but I don't remember a time where he actually said that to me. And that left me wondering. You know what I mean? There's like a big gap. I, w- I wonder what he really thinks. And so this concept of saying it aloud felt risky to me. So for a long time, Betsy would say to me, I love you. And I would say something foolish like, me too. What does that even mean? But I couldn't bring myself to say back to her, I love you. It wasn't about Betsy's love for me. It was about what me was thinking about me. And so when we get caught in this place where we're realizing that I don't like myself so much, where we're wrestling with the fact that we do sin, this tension makes us crazy because we want to be lovable. We know we need to be loved, but we don't feel or look on our insides like we're very lovable. Am I the only one? I mean, it's a struggle. Last week, that's where people were resonating with. And this tension makes us crazy. It just drives this moment as we wrestle with, how, how do I possibly stay with Jesus when I don't feel so good? And all these different tensions happen. The problem with it is this, is when you hit that spot that Brennan was talking about last week, You might today, when we're talking, because I'm going to, in a sense, get personal, you might hit that spot where you'll pull in and you'll want to go away. At some point in time when I'm counseling with someone and I'm listening to them and I sit down and I say, well, what is it that's important to talk about? And they start to tell me, people never get into the deep right away. They go, let me tell you all my dark, deep secrets. It doesn't, no. They just throw out little bits. Like, they they might really be struggling with alcoholism, but they'll say something like, I think I might be drinking too much. To which a good counselor will say back to them, so you think you're drinking too much? And they'll go, yes. And then they'll hope we'll stop talking about that, and we'll talk about the Minnesota Twins or something. But I'm not going to stop there. Because I want to know what's going on. So I say, well, what, what makes you say that? And they'll shift in their chair like, uh-oh, I knew I shouldn't have come to counseling. And they'll say, well, uh, sometimes I kind of lose my sensibilities. To which a good counselor says you lose your sensibilities. <laughs> it's really easy to be a counselor. You just say back to them what they said to you. But then you wait. That's the tricky part. You wait. And sometimes when God is showing something to us, sometimes when God's Spirit is revealing something to us, we know it's naughty, and so we don't want to go there. That's why confession's hard. We know it's naughty. And I'm supposed to tell somebody my naughtiness? That does not feel good, right? So as we're talking, I am praying. In fact, I'm going to pray right now while I make my journey back up on stage. Lord, would you help us? to just walk in the light as you were in the light. No shame. You're not surprised. You know the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. You know where we are. So please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is a reality dealer. He is always bringing reality through his letters. Sometimes people would read his letters and say, man, he's just always barking at the churches. But One of the key realities that Paul understands and works from is this truth 
that we've got to settle ourselves. And that is this. Here's reality, people. You are not enough alone. There, I said it. You're not enough alone. And you can go, well, yeah, I've heard that. I think that. But there's something about us that keeps striving to be enough alone. It's the broken part of us. The biggest lie in the universe and the history of mankind was what the devil said to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. In other words, you can be separate and sovereign and not need anything or anyone at any time. That's a lie. And we've got to reckon with that because deep down inside of us is this part of us that keeps looking for something, someone. Give it to me, please, because we're not enough on our own. I love watching two-year-olds in the candy aisle because it's such a powerful betrayal. Those kids don't walk down the candy aisle and see all those Reese's peanut butter cups and go, oh, whatever. What do they do, people? Tony, he's laughing. He knows. He's got three boys he's trying to corral. I need these things. I saw a kid. You know, I did some shopping at Target, and I saw this kid. He did the old drop and curl right, right at the catcher. You know Julie, right? He, he's standing there, and he, he sees it. And you know, it's his last chance. He knows time's ticking. He grabs the candy bar. I got to have this. I got to have this. I got to have this. So give it to me. Right? How do, how do I know to do that so well? Betsy won't go shopping with me anymore. But it's such a raw portrayal of what's really inside of us. We all have it, don't we? You fathers, huh? You've been looking at the catalogs. You need the new shoes and the new fishing pole. You need the new tool. Something, right? And you have compelling arguments. I used to say to Betsy all the time when I was racing bikes, oh, I need a new bike. You just got a new bike. Yeah, but I've been racing it hard, and, you know, it's not that safe. You want me to be safe, right? <laughs> Terrible, you know? Because inside of us, we have these desires. We're, we're looking. We're, we're hunting. We want something, someone to complete us. And the, 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 the sub-reality to this, the truth that Paul says is that the Christian life is a continual display to everyone who we're giving ourselves to. We're living billboards of that. So, I mean, there, there right now is a woman that Betsy and I are praying for. She's about my age, 60. She's about yay tall, probably weighs soaking wet 120 pounds. She starts her morning with drinking two liters of wine. That slows her down. By lunch, she's consumed five liters of wine. I don't even know how physically she can do this. She'll pass out for a little while, but when she wakes up, she needs to get a little bit of the hair of the dog, the bitter, and she'll start drinking again. Consuming seven liters of wine a day from what people know about. And yet, if you were to ask her, are you a Christian? She would say yes. But she's caught in the way that Paul is preaching about. Be careful 
who you give yourself to, to fulfill yourself, to satisfy yourself, to complete yourself, because whatever that thing or that person is, it will have you. It'll have you. When I became a believer, I never, you know, when I grew up, my dad was a drinker. So I said I wasn't going to drink, and then I went to play football. And I was shocked when I got there because in high school, none of us drank. We were, like, religious about it. We would go to parties and drag football players out. We got to college, and everybody drank. And not only did they drink, but they used drugs. I was like, wow. And I did not have Jesus. I did not have anything anchoring my soul. And I'm in this context. And so I gave myself to those things until those things got me. And they held me. And I remember when I went to work at St. Olaf after graduating, it was weird because it, it was a non-alcoholic campus, completely dry. And I was trying to stop, but I was shakes. You guys have heard stories about this. And when I became a Christian, I remember when I prayed, one of the things that I noticed the morning after I had prayed was that the shakes were gone. The desire was gone. The urge was gone. But you know what wasn't gone? I still craved something to complete me. And I was still scared to death of being rejected. And so I was so tempted to go back to my old ways of cover-up, lying, faking. And it was unnerving. And the reality is, is that if we're going to live the honest Christian life, Sometimes what we're advertising in the billboard of our life doesn't look that good. When I go to Brendan and I tell him I'm struggling with this or I'm fighting this, we sit down and we talk and we pray and we pray through the challenge, I'm risking at that moment that he's not going to think as much of me, that he's going to lose confidence in me. It's not something that I really like, but the reality is, is until it gets into the light, it has me by the throat. It's got me. And so in all of our lives, and this is where it's be really easy for you folks to just turn off, turn down, and go, I don't know if I want to go here. But we have to go here. The Bible takes us here. Jesus has brought us here. And let me tell you this, from the bottom of my heart, this isn't about shaming you. This isn't about pointing a finger at you. This is about telling you that there is a master named Jesus who loves the daylights out of you. And he has a jealous love, and he wants every single part of you and I. He's that jealous. He doesn't want part-timers. He wants full-timers. And so when Paul says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves as someone as obedient slaves, you'll be slaves of the one you obey? And we fight this tension. Because even now, if there's things that you're fighting, if there's addictions, if there's thoughts, these things that you're chained to, the temptation is to think, I'm going to do better. I'll fight harder. I'll work harder. I'm, I'm, I'm. No, it's not I. That's the whole problem. That's the whole thing Paul was getting after. You need a master. Pick the right master. And don't evaluate yourself alone. When Brendan was pouring out his heart last week, I was thinking, yeah, that's exactly what happens when we evaluate ourselves according to ourselves. 
Jesus came to model what the faith life looked like. And he, he sometimes said things that probably drove people crazy and sounded a little bit psychotic. Well, the Father and I don't see that. I only say what I hear the Father saying. Well, you hear voices. I only do what I see the Father doing. What he's talking about is how he's moving through his life always together. And ladies and gentlemen, when we're really fighting something, I mean, let's be honest today. We're halfway there. Let's just jump in. If we're really fighting something, that shame comes after us, and we're so embarrassed, we're so discouraged, we want to take it on ourselves. Or we want to earn our way back. Talk to me. Is this not true? Is it? So Paul is hitting these realities. And our country is full of places where this is happening. I mean, giving people over to certain masters, it's, it's, it's a done deal because every single one of us is dependent on something. We can't get away from it. So I was looking at stats. 9% of Americans struggle with a shopping addiction. In other words, when they go to the store, they can't control their spending. 23 million people are addicted to drugs and alcohol. 23 million cannot control they can't stop with just one. 70 million Americans struggle with some kind of an eating disorder. It's just unbelievable. You have to eat. I mean, I, was, I, I read that, and I, I got kind of convicted over my potato chip jokes. I was like, oh, maybe I should stop eating chips. Maybe chips are going to eat me. I'm in trouble, you know. But it's no real joke. You have to eat. And when you feel like your eating is out of control, it's scary. I told First Service that I worked at St. Olaf. I was a head resident, and I was checking the students into the dorm. It was in the fall, early September. And these five girls came, and they were all going to live together in the same big room in the dorm. And they were a lot of fun. They were kidding. They were joking. They were teasing me. They were telling me how much mischief they were going to cause. You know, I said, oh, yeah, well, you want to play that game, huh? And he said, we go back and forth and banter. And I got to know them pretty well. And the four of them were really... They were really outgoing. But then this, this fifth one, she kind of stood out to me because she was quieter. Her name was Margot. And I got to know them. They would come up. They would just say, how you doing? And we would chat. And time went on, and we got through September and into October. And all of a sudden, I noticed I wasn't seeing Margot very much. And then we got into November, and November was rolling. We are getting close to Thanksgiving break. And one morning, I was shaving. And all of a sudden, I hear this pounding on the door, just frantic, bark, bark, bark. So I wipe my face off, and I go to the door, what's wrong? And it's, it's these four girls, minus Margot. They go, quick, follow us. And they ran down the hallway, and they're sprinting down the hallway. I'm trying to keep up with them. We go down. They fling the door open, and they run over, and they look. And there on the shower floor is Margot, and she's bleeding everywhere. And I just, I was stunned. I didn't know what to say. And so I said to one of them, I said, go up and call campus security. You call the hospital and get an ambulance here. We've got to figure this out. Would you please go in there and wrap her in a robe? Be careful of her head in case she hit her head if she fell. And then I went in. And you guys, I, I picked her up. And I can still remember what it felt like. It just was so bad. It was like holding a bag of bones. Not only had she stopped eating as soon as she got to campus because she was so fat, she thought. She was purging herself. 
she almost killed herself. She thought she was in control of her eating, but it was eating her. And when you sit with someone like that, you realize how distorted. She asked me to go into, go into these meetings with her and to just to be an accountability partner. And you'd sit there and you'd watch these poor people that were struggling with body image, and eating thing in there. They're, the whole time they're pulling themselves and pinching themselves and shifting. They couldn't settle because they were trapped. Don't you think for a minute that God, the creator of those people, isn't there with jealous love? Well, I've had it with that thing. I want that thing. Give me that thing. And yet, in those moments, it's so tempting to hang on to that thing. Let go of the thing. It's killing you. It just kills us. It sucks the life out of us. Ten million Americans hooked on gambling. Pornography, a huge problem. It's just growing through all ages. The, the smartphones you have are addicting people at amazing rates. They've been here 10 years. They're rewiring our brains. One of the guys that I read about internet addiction, he was talking about this. He said, I sat next to a family at a restaurant, a family of five. The only time they talked with each other was just when they ordered. After that, the whole meal, they were on their phone. Now, you could go, oh, he's just a crazy preacher going after T-Mobile. <laughs> I'm not. You guys, I'm really scared. I don't know about you, but the condition of people's souls and their personhood is on the line. It is literally on the line. Because it steals us. You, you, you get pulled. So I still watch people. It goes, ding, what do they do? They don't stay in the conversation. They pick up their phone. So we've got to figure out a way, how do we stay with Jesus through this world where we're dependent on all, we have this dependency inside of us. How do we not become addicted, mastered? The word addicted literally comes from a Latin word meaning enslaved. I was kidding Brendan. First service, I put up a slide of, are you addicted to cheese? I told him that we were having an intervention. I don't know if you know this about Brendan, but cheese and he are very close friends. I think maybe we should talk to him after the service and find out just how that's going. But <laughs> everything's just fine, isn't it? But I want you to see and I want you to be honest about this inside of us because we, this is the tension that we walk through, that we, we know we need something outside of us, but what? And we hear, I don't know if you heard this, but I heard when I was uh, first getting the gospel from somebody, they told me, you know, it's like we have a hole in our heart, and the only person that can fill it is Jesus. But here's where it gets tricky. What about the 26 fallen pastors that I've sat with? What about them? They're pastors. The majority of them, if not all of them, knew their Bibles front and back. Many of them could preach circles around me. A lot of them had churches that were big. You would know some of them. What about them? Didn't they have Jesus? What happened? Where did it go wrong? This is the tension. Because what you would hear is that 
yeah, they had Jesus, but they weren't walking in the reality of his fellowship, his nearness. They weren't learning, and this is what's really important for us saints. If you look in the scripture, there are so many exhortations to wait. How many of you like waiting? How many of you choose the longest line in the grocery store? The line of traffic that runs far back. We don't naturally like to wait, do we? And when you're in that moment, and when you know you need something outside of yourself, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, sometimes that desire gets the best of you. And it did for these 26 men. They couldn't stand it. But if I asked them, what was the last clear thing you heard from Jesus? Most of them couldn't remember. If I asked them, who was the last person you told this to? They definitely couldn't remember. They didn't have anybody who would sit down with them and to say, how are you doing really? Gloves off. And so they were living with this incredible tension of needing life, needing something. And they knew deep down inside of them, I need something. Give me something. And they grabbed something that they thought was going to give them life. And it took it. Took it. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, people. Be careful who you give yourself to because it will be your master. They will be your master. So wisdom then calls to us and to say that what we really need, what we really want, what Paul would tell us is we need someone who's always available. Amen? Someone who's always available. We need someone who's always reliable. We really need someone who doesn't need anything from us, right? Because then you, if it's someone who needs something or could need something from you, you could fall into that idea of the only reason that you like me, the only reason you help me is because you want something from me. So we need someone who doesn't need anything. Who is that? Who's always available? Who doesn't need anything? Who's very present? John, the son of thunder, who was transformed to the apostle of love, said it this way, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not live out the truth. In other words, we're not experiencing the reality we're meant to experience. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all unrighteousness. As I close this morning, I close mindful of, I'm preaching to me. I have desires. I have wayward thoughts. I have temptations. I have places where I do eat too many potato chips. <laughs> but I also have places where 
I have thoughts I shouldn't think. But I don't think I'm alone in the room. In fact, I'm pretty sure, given Brennan's message last week in the response, that we're in this together. The one who made you, the one who loves you, wants to feel that. It'd be really easy just to hold your breath, to pull in tight, and carry this thing off by yourself, but that would be the wrong direction according to what we just read. God instead is inviting you to know that he's the one who's loved you with an everlasting love, still does. He knows where you are. He's not surprised. Oh, Mark did that? He's fully aware. And yet he's saying, I'll take that. Let me have that. Give that to me. As I was preparing the message, I read or listened to a TED Talk from a pastor, Pastor Jason, who was addicted to porn. He was teaching in this TED Talk. He said, it's not porn that has you. And he talked about his epiphany when he realized that what was happening was he didn't have porn. Porn had him. And he needed to write a serious breakup letter. And I want to read to you part of it because I think it's informative to us when we seek to apply this scripture. It goes like this. When we first met, it was like any new and even secret dating relationship. Lots of attention, obsession, that constant feeling of being on a high. I really couldn't get enough of you because you were always there to pick me up when I felt down. Sounds just like it, doesn't it? But then things changed. Even though you were always able to make me feel good physically, you had this way about you that made me feel terrible about myself on the insides. Then I came to the realization, you were lying to me. I realized you weren't faithful to me. You were in a relationship with almost all my friends. I was a fool to let you into my life and to believe your lies. Now, since I broke up with you, it hasn't been easy. But I've managed to get my family back my marriage back, and most importantly, my heart and soul back. Because believing the best about myself seemed like a leap, but it's the best jump I've ever met. So now I'm inspired and I'm on a mission to keep as many people as I can from being hurt by you. Jesus' mission trumps it. His mission is to keep as many people away from those things that would consume them because his desire is for them. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's one of those messages, even for me, you know, I just, there's a part of me that wants to run out of the door and hide. There's a part of me that wants to cover up. A part of me that feels a lot of risk in this. And yet there's a part of me that realizes it feels a lot like being in the light. So I pray that as we do this offering and as we give our, our tithes and offerings, we would give more, that we would give more of ourselves. Those parts, Lord, where we might be struggling, where we realize, ah, something might have me. It could be my temper. It could be drinking. It could be internet. I don't know. You know. They know. But I pray that this would be a day 
a real Father's Day revelation where that out of your jealous love, you would send your spirit that would rescue us and that we would experience what you said when you said, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. Stronger. You are more powerful than anything that can be thrown at us, Lord. 